Kia ora. It's great to have you uh, with us, whether you are at Botany, watching this on the big screen um, on Sunday morning. It's great to be with you, even though I'm not with you, because by the time you watch this, I am going to be in Nepal uh, with Rochelle and with Roland and Elaine for Barnabas School of Leadership. So we're in the last message in the series that we've been doing on Summit Journey. Um, and now although we have a brilliant preaching team that I get to delegate out some different sermons to, I really wanted to do this last one. Um, because uh, it's the wrap-up to this and it's pulling it all together and I really wanted to do this. So hence we're filming this and showing it on the big screen at Botany. So kia ora uh, to those of you sitting, listening uh, to this at Botany. Um, kia ora too to you in Hastings. It uh, was wonderful to be with you recently and I hope um, that this is a special message for you guys as well. And also hi to anyone who's watching or listening to this uh, via our website or somewhere uh, on the internet. So it's great to be together. So we're in this uh, series, finishing up today in the series on Summit Journey, which is our discipleship strategy that we are implementing this year. And our key question has been, how am I planning to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? So we can come back to this question at the end of this message as we kind of pull the whole series together and talk about what are the next steps going forward from here. Um, but we've been talking about four key questions and in particular zeroing in on some key uh, areas of life, some key traits that followers of Jesus are to have. And we've talked through six of them so far. And today, this morning, we come to the final one, which is joyful generosity. So joyful generosity. And so the idea of joyful generosity is that there's a key identity, which we've had for each of these in the, um, the guidebook for Summit Journey, but the key identity for this is that I am a steward. A steward isn't really a word that we use that much anymore, but a steward uh, back in the past was someone who was given responsibility for the estate or the assets of uh, someone else. So a steward didn't actually own uh, what they managed, but they managed it on behalf of the original owner. And what the Bible reminds us time and again through both the Old and New Testaments, is that ultimately we are stewards. Now, I haven't actually done a, a Lord of the Rings reference for a long time, but I can't help it here, because one of uh, the characters in the Lord of the Rings, that especially comes out in the third book and the third movie, is the steward of Gondor. His name is Denethor. Uh, for the Lord of the Rings, the buffs and fans, he's the father of Boromir and Faramir, but he is the steward of a kingdom called Gondor. Gondor hasn't had a king for hundreds of years. In fact, Aragorn, one of the key characters of the Lord of the Rings, is the descendant of the kings of Gondor, and he is the rightful king who will assume the throne. But while there haven't been kings, the stewards of Gondor, of which Denethor is the latest version, have been the ones that have governed the kingdom on behalf of the king. And that's what really a good picture of a steward a steward isn't the king. This is not the king of Gondor, but he is looking after the kingdom, governing the realm until the real king comes. And interestingly, in the Lord of the Rings, Denethor does not want the king to come. So it's he's the steward, but he is he has almost taken over the kingdom for himself. He has forgotten his rightful place, and he's almost usurped the place. Of the king because he doesn't want the king, the real king, uh, the rightful king, to turn up. What the Bible teaches is, is that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, we're stewards. 
The stuff that we have in life, the homes we might own, the cars we might drive, the assets we may have, the skills even that we are given, life itself, actually everything we have and are is owned by God. He's the real owner. And you and I are just stewards of what we have. So earlier in the service of Botany, uh, you guys uh, listened to uh, God's word from First Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 29. Part of that reading said this, Yours, Lord. This is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Now, don't miss this next line that I've put in bold here. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. And as David prays this prayer, which is in the context of gathering materials to build the temple that his son Solomon will build in Jerusalem, he acknowledges in this prayer that ultimately everything is God's. Everything. And that includes your stuff, and that includes my stuff. We are simply stewards of what God has placed into our care, and we are to look after what God has given to us on his behalf, because he is, he is the real owner. Which is why David then acknowledges in verse 12, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. And so to have a rightful view of stuff means that we understand that we are stewards. And in light of that, the key verb for this final trait of joyful generosity is that we give. The key difficulty that we have, the, the key challenge that we face is materialism. Interestingly enough, I was uh, working on this a, a couple of years ago. This has been a couple of years in the making this summer journey. And I was working on this idea of what does a disciple of Jesus look like? What are the traits of someone who follows Jesus? And I came up with six key traits. And then we started interacting with American author and pastor Kevin Harney, who came out last year in 2018 for the Living Stones Conference. And he had been working on something similar. And when he sent through his notes to us at the Living Stones board about what he'd like to bring and share at conference, he had seven key traits of a follower of Jesus. What was fascinating was that the key, the six traits that I had come up with from the Bible mirrored exactly six of the seven that Kevin had done. So obviously we're both reading the same Bible, which is really good. The one trait that Kevin had that wasn't on my original list was this one, joyful generosity. And so when he was over, Kevin was here in New Zealand for the Livingstones Conference, middle of, of last year, 2018, I was sitting with him and talking with him about that. And he laughed as I described that. And he said, that's so funny. Because when they put the list together in their church in Northern California, they originally had six traits. And this was the one that was missing. And it was only as they reflected more and looked more at how often Jesus talks about money and what we do with treasure and how we handle our finances. And then realized that actually of all of the seven challenges to, to being a disciple of Jesus, materialism may be the toughest one for those of us who live in the Western developed world. They added in the seventh trait of joyful generosity. And I, having heard that and re-studied that, totally concur. And so I'm excited for us to talk about this today because this is a, an incredibly important issue when you look at how often Jesus spoke about what we do with money. 
So today, though, we're going to be looking not at something Jesus said, but actually something that Paul wrote to his protege, a young pastor by the name of Timothy, about what Timothy was to teach the people in the church that he was pastoring about what to do with wealth. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, either paper Bible, phone, app, whatever, um, I want you to come with, uh, uh, with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 19. The key question uh, for today, this final trait, is this one. To what extent am I growing in generosity and exhibiting a deep trust in God and a loose grip on my stuff? To what extent am I uh, growing in generosity and exhibiting, on one hand, a deep trust in God and, on the other hand, a loose grip on my stuff? If you've got 1 Timothy 6 open in front of you, you'll see that, that what Paul says in verse 17 as he starts this off, is he, as he says, Timothy, I want you to command, give these commands to those who are rich in this world. And it would be incredibly tempting to read those words and go, well, that's fine, it's not me. Because I think all of us have a tendency where we see the word rich, unless we're mega wealthy, which I don't really think anyone in our church falls into that category, it's, it's very easy for us to go, well, that isn't me. When you see the words, to those who are rich, you go, well, that's not obviously not me. And the reason we do that is because we compare ourselves to people who have so much more than us. But the truth of the matter is, biblically, almost all of us listening to this message or watching this video, all of us are wealthy. We are all rich in this present world. The reality is in and when he taught his disciples to pray, Jesus taught them to pray, give us today our daily bread. And that's because many of his hearers were, were on, on the borderline of extreme poverty. That was literally the prayer they needed to pray. They had no money in the bank. They had nothing in the pantry. And so they had to pray each day that God would provide for them. I'm struggling to think of, of anyone in some at Church of Body or at Hastings in, in quite that position. Certainly we may feel we're not wealthy. Certainly we may have mortgages and debts and, or we may own very little. But in reality, compared to many of the people of Jesus' day, we are wealthy. And the truth of the matter is too, compared to most people around our world, you and I are very wealthy. Many of us are super rich in comparison to people around the world. This is the comment that the former head of World Vision in the US, Richard Stearns, wrote in a book. If your income is 25000 per year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world's population. If you make fifty grand a year, which is in US dollars, you're wealthier than 99% of the world. So roughly that's about, I don't know why I haven't even worked this out, 80, 85k? If you earn more than that as a, as a household, as a family... You're, you're in the top 1% of the world's population in terms of wealth. He says, look at this line, of the 6.7 billion, it's slightly more than that now, but people on earth, almost half of them live on less than $2 a day. That means if you are earning more than $14 per week, this passage is for you because you're rich. That means if you are on the minimum wage, and working more than one hour a week on the minimum wage, you're rich. If you are a student with a part-time job, you're rich. If you're a teenager getting pocket money 
The reality is you are probably earning more than half the population of this world. And so we actually need to take this really seriously. We may not feel rich. There may not be a huge amount of money in our bank account. We may have debts coming out of our ears. But the vast majority of us, at least, if not all of us, are rich in this present world. And what Paul is going to say here is directed to me, and it's directed to you. So what is he saying? Well, he says three uh, very pretty simple things, really. First of all, he says, develop a thankful, dependent heart. Develop a thankful, dependent heart. Here's what he writes, verse 17. I'm going to bring it up on the screen for us. Command those, he says, who are rich in this present world, which is the vast majority, if not all of us, Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I'd struggle to get my head around this, this particular verse for a little bit. Uh, actually, verses 17 to 19 is one long sentence in the original Greek language. And there's actually two uh, negative things that, that Paul tells Timothy to command uh, us and five positive things. And trying to get your head around these seven particular statements is a little bit hard until you start to see the interrelationships. And I would argue verse 17, and in our English translations, they're often separate sentences. But in verse 17, I think Paul is doing something quite interesting. This is the, the structure, I think, of verse 17. So he says the two negatives, not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth. And then he makes two other statements in, in the second half of the verse. But put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything we have to enjoy. So I think what Paul is doing here is he's giving two key ideas. Number one is don't be too arrogant. So that's the, the command at the very beginning. But then the reason why at the very end of the verse, we are not to be arrogant about wealth. We're not to be a little bit like, well, you know, this is what I've earned. Look at all that I've accomplished and my hard work and so on, rah, rah, rah. Why? Because ultimately, it's God who richly provides what we have for our enjoyment. So yeah, you might have worked hard. You might have uh, climbed the, the, the corporate ladder. You might have uh, done an education and worked hard to get where you're at today. And I get all that, but what Paul is saying is, actually, ultimately, everything we have is God's. And if he's blessed us, we are not to be arrogant about that, but to be thankful. Then the second thing he says is, we're not to be too arrogant, and we're not to be too dependent. We are not to be too dependent on our wealth. We are not to, to look to the future and trust that because we've got a certain amount of money, that we're okay. Now, it says in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Proverbs 23, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Why? Why shouldn't we pursue wealth with everything we've got? Because, Solomon wrote, cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. The reality is that, that when people choose to depend and put their hope fully on what they have in the bank, that's making a foolish mistake. 
Because if God is the one who, who, who owns everything, if God is the one who has given us everything we have, then our trust should not be in the gift that he has given. Our trust should be in the giver. This generous and good God who looks after his children. It's really interesting. Back in 1923, nine of the wealthiest men in the world met in a hotel in Chicago. They were head of conglomerates. The president of the New York Stock Exchange was there. One of the U.S. cabinet ministers was there. A leader of one of the largest banks. So were nine of the wealthiest individuals at that point in human history that the world had ever seen. Fast forward 10 years later, one decade, and those nine men were nowhere to be seen. Three of them had committed suicide. Three of them had been bankrupted and died penniless. Two of them ended up in prison for breaking the law. And the, the final one went insane. It's a staggering reminder that, that these nine individuals who together had a vast percentage of the wealth of the entire human race in their hands. And it had flown off. It had sprouted wings in the course of a decade in which the Great Depression came. And so Paul, writing to his young protege, says, talk to those who are wealthy, to those who have money, which is you and me, and say two things. Don't be arrogant about that. Just remember what you have is a gift from God. So be thankful for that. And don't be dependent on it. Don't put your trust in the bank balance, don't put your trust in Kiwi Saver. Don't, don't put your trust in the fact that you might own a house even if there's a mortgage on it. No, no, you put your trust not in the gifts, but in the generous giver that is so generously given to you. So develop, Paul says, a thankful and dependent heart. Secondly, then he says, cultivate a generous giving spirit. Cultivate a generous giving spirit. And this is what verse 18 is about. Now remember, this is one big sentence in the original Greek language. But it's helpful. The, the verses are actually in quite helpful places to follow the, the thinking that Paul has. So verse 18 reads like this. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So Paul here lists off quite quickly four key commands. The first two are general commands, to do good, and then he repeats that with a quite a fun metaphor, to do good and to be rich in good deeds. So it's a command to do good, because that's what God's people have always been called to do. Uh, Paul will write to the church in Ephesus, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2.10, we're God's handiwork, we're God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Paul is quite carefully, right beforehand, but right before these verses, said, good works do not save us. It is only faith in Jesus and the incredible grace of God that saves us. But while good works don't save us, good works are what we've been created and saved to do. And so Paul here, writing to Timothy, says, tell those who are wealthy to just generally, as a normal course of life, to do good. And to notice the wording here, the play on words, to be rich. But to those who are rich in this present world, be rich, but don't be rich in money. Don't keep trying to make sure your bank balance is growing and growing and growing. It's said you be rich in good deeds. 
You, you go out of your way to live a life of good works by being rich in good deeds. So that's the general idea in the first two commands. But then he gets very specific about what that should look like for those who, quote, are rich in this present age. And that is that we should be generous and be willing to share. That if God has blessed us with money, then we are to be generous with that and give that back to God and back to God's people and back to God's work and back to those who need it. God has been generous to us and blessed us so that we can now be a blessing to others. One of my favourite verses in the Bible on giving is this one from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This one from 2 Corinthians 9. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. My personal belief and the conviction of our leadership team at Summit Church is that the Old Testament tithe is no longer mandatory for God's people in the New Testament era. So we don't believe, so a number of churches do believe that, a number of churches will preach that you should be giving 10% of your income, which is what the word tithe actually meant, a tenth. And so there are many churches around who believe that God's people should be giving mandatory a 10% that you should be setting aside 10% of your income and giving that to God's work. Personally, here at Summer Church, we don't, we don't necessarily believe that. Um, and that's because we are no longer under the New Testament law. Galatians and Romans and other places make that clear. And so the specific percentage, the specific amount, uh, we don't believe is, is passed on as part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the New Testament era. Um, because we're no longer under the Old Testament law where that is given. And interestingly, the command to tithe, the idea of that, is never really repeated as a command in the New Testament. Rather, what we're called to do is to give generously. That we are to give cheerfully. That we are to give joyfully. So what I take that to mean is that for some people, they may give less than 10%, particularly if they are less well off. And I have no problem pastorally as a pastor saying to people who may be on the breadline, may be close to poverty, may be on a very low income, and trying to feed a family and struggling to make that work. I believe there is a, an important principle of worship and trust in God for us to give and give generously, but that might be a smaller percentage than 10% for some people who are really struggling. Equally though, I think for many people who, who God has blessed abundantly, and let's face it, that's many of us. We should be moving towards 10% and well beyond 10% if that's what God has given. So the Old Testament tithe, I don't think, actually fits us. By the way, for those who do want to go with a 10% tithe, it's actually not 10%. Because in the Old Testament, there were three of them. There was, in Numbers 18, a tithe that went to the Levites and the priests. But then in Deuteronomy 14, there was an additional tithe that was given each year for the national festivals that Israel would celebrate to pay for those. And then Deuteronomy 14, a few verses later, also talk about tithes for the poor, which were given every three years. And so as a percentage, if you want to tithe literally the way the Old Testament teaches it, you don't tithe 10%. You should be tithing a minimum of 23.3%. And so... 
personally though, see that's not what I think the New Testament is doing. The New Testament, this is what the New Testament does. It says, this is what God has done for you in His grace. In light of that, what God is looking for is a cheerful giver. What God is looking for is men and women who are so moved by the grace of God that they give. And for a few people, some people, that might be less than 10%. Because life's hard and money's tight and you're trying to raise a family on a very limited income. But for many of us, that may be through our lives, more than 10%. In fact, I came across a really cool diagram and idea recently in a book I was reading from a church in Canada. And they, uh, they came up with this picture. This is the, uh, someone's giving through the course of their life. And as income generally goes up, as you move forward in your career and you get better paying jobs. But the idea they suggested was that over time through our lives, what actually might be appropriate is an increasing percentage that possibly may be less than the 10% tithe to begin with as you just start emerging into this idea of being a generous giver. And by the way, I would say this is true for really anyone. And so if you're a a student and you've just got a part-time job as you go through high school or uni and you're trying to cover fees, and I would actually be saying to you, set up an AP. I I would challenge you to start regularly giving, even if it's something small. But if you've got a part-time job, to maybe sacrifice and give, you know, 10 bucks a week or $5 a week out of that money, I think is actually a very good discipline to start. What many people will do is, well, they say, well, I can't afford it right now, but when I earn more, then I'll start giving. And the truth of the matter is we should start doing it immediately. And so if you're not currently giving, if you're a student working part-time or, well, you've just never got around to giving, to starting that up, to setting up an AP, I challenge you to start. Just start with something really small. But then over time, I like this idea that, you know, as income starts to grow, we're starting to engage more in the mission of God and in in generosity. And our giving begins to expand until suddenly we're giving well beyond a 10% tithe. Until perhaps as income gets significantly higher, our giving actually ends up becoming what many would say was extravagant. See, if you're locked into to just the idea of a 10% tithe like the Old Testament would talk about, I don't think this actually then is, is necessarily part of that. But ultimately, I think this is what 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7 is calling for. You give what you've decided in your heart to give in response to God's grace. Not reluctantly and not under compulsion because Brad threw up a chart. But you decide what you want to give before God, joyfully cheerfully in response to his grace. Fascinatingly, uh, this idea from this chart of as your income rises, perhaps what you want to be doing is giving more and more uh, proportionally of your income. I think actually that's where Paul goes next in 1 Corinthians 9. So he he makes this overarching principle statement in verse 7, and then he goes on to write this in in verse 8. And God's able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, as God blesses you, and you have all that you need already, then you'll be able to abound, you'll be able to grow in this good work of giving, and give more. And see, that's what he says in verse 11, he goes on to say, you will be enriched in every way, 
so that you can be generous on every occasion, which will result in thanksgiving to God. See, as we are enriched in every way, we can be more and more generous in the way we're given. And so I think that's what, what God is looking for. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, I love a comment by Pastor Randy Alcorn in the States. He wrote these words, when God provides more money, we often think this is a blessing. Uh, well, yes, it is, he says, but it would be just as scriptural to think this is a test. And so I encourage us to, to think much more, uh, much less in terms of a tithe and a percentage and much more in terms of generosity. And as God uh, perhaps blesses us more as we go through the years, to take up that challenge to make joyful generosity a key part, a key trait of our lives, to be giving more and more generously to God. Because that's what he's calling for. So he says, develop this thankful, this dependent heart where we realize that all that we have is a blessing from God and we choose to trust the giver rather than his gift. But then we cultivate this generous and giving spirit. And then the third part of joyful generosity that Paul then goes to with Timothy in verse 19 is to adopt an eternal heavenly perspective. Adopt an eternal heavenly perspective. And so he writes in verse 19, in this way they will lay up uh, treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul obviously here is picking up the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere that have become so well known. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, for example, the version in Matthew's Gospel, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not steal, for where your treasure is that your heart will be also. Uh, Luke says, uh, records the same teaching, maybe slightly different. Jesus may well have taught this numerous times on different occasions. Luke records it this way. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. In other words, in heaven. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. Again, same line again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, what, what Jesus was saying is that we can either accumulate treasure on earth, and I think there's that idea of dependency again from verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6. We can accumulate treasure on earth to make us feel safer and, and more confident and, and, and be able to look to the future more, or we, could, we can accumulate treasure in heaven by, by giving it away, by being generous, by living out this idea of joyful generosity. It's interesting, uh, there was just an article in the Herald uh, recently, uh, this, this past week I believe, that was talking about how much people are going to need to have in their retirement. The superannuation is not going to cut it. And if you live, have lived in some more rural areas or some more you know, outlying parts of New Zealand, you, you, you may get by mostly on New Zealand super, you only need a small amount saved in KiwiSaver. But if you were to live in a city, if you live in Auckland, you need something like three quarters of a million dollars to be able to live in retirement well and, and comfortably. And so for many people, that's the big deal. How am I going to afford retirement? What, what is that going to mean? Jesus is coming along and saying, look, retirement's important. You know, let, let's not throw that out and say, let's just spend money and not be careful and not be wise. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Sure, be concerned about your retirement. Make sure you've got a Kiwi saver going or whatever that is. But 
you know what? You're not going to spend eternity retired. You're going to spend eternity with me. And so actually, why don't you begin to invest in heaven by being generous now where we are? Because we're not going to take our treasure with us, but in a funny sense, we, we, we can by generously giving. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. And notice what Jesus says, both in Matthew's version and in Luke's version. It's exactly the same. This last line. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the order of what Jesus says. Jesus is not saying, if your heart is bound to earth, that's where your treasure will go. But if your heart is really set on heavenly things, that's where your treasure is going to go. Your treasure follows your heart. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart follows that. And so one of the ways that we can change our hearts, one of the ways we can get a looser grip on our stuff, one of the ways to grapple with materialism in our lives and a, a dependency on our stuff and an arrogance about our wealth is to give our stuff away, is to grow in generosity. Because Jesus says, where we put our treasure, our heart follows. So if we're worried about our retirement and our savings account and our KiwiSaver and whether or not we'll have our mortgage paid off by a certain time and if our focus and our, and our, our soul, where we're really zeroing in on and our dependency, if all of that is based on accumulating treasure on earth and making sure we've got enough for our retirement, Jesus is saying, well, that's exactly where our heart will be. Be totally focused on the next 20, 30, 50 years. But he says, if you choose as a result of God's grace to be generous with what I blessed you with, and if you choose to invest in the kingdom of God, if you choose to be generous with the money I've given you, and you, by doing that, accumulate treasure in heaven, guess where your heart will go? Your heart more and more will follow where you're laying your treasure. And so as you're generous with your money, what God has given, as you choose to try and increase the proportion of your giving with a cheerfulness and a response to His grace, Jesus is saying, your heart's going to follow that. The more you focus on giving to the kingdom of God and thinking about what this may actually do in the light of eternity, the more your heart's going to long for eternity rather than what your retirement is going to do. And so that's what Paul says. To those who are rich in this present world, which is me, I'm rich. It just it feels weird to say that, but I am. So are you. To those of us who are rich in this present world, Paul says, develop a thankful, dependent heart. Don't be arrogant. Don't, don't put all your trust in your wealth and your Kiwi saver and your back balance. And cultivate a generous giving spirit. Choose to do good. Choose to be rich in good deeds by being generous and liberal and willing to share. And adopt an eternal, heavenly perspective. Remember, that's home. And we have the opportunity now to lay up treasure in heaven by this generous spirit. And so the question here for this one, for this final trait of a growing disciple of Jesus, is to what extent 
Am I growing in generosity and exhibiting a, a deep trust in God and a loose grip on stuff? See, I've, I actually didn't intentionally do this, but this question, which was written weeks before I prepared this message, ties beautifully into what Paul has just written. See, if we're to develop a thankful, dependent heart, that's helping us to really grow a deep trust in God. And so the question for us to maybe think about is, is that me? Does my life, the way my giving and saving and spending habits are formed right now, do they exhibit a deep trust in God? And then if we're going to cultivate a generous giving spirit, which is what Paul says next, then the question we ask is, am I growing in generosity? Am I growing uh, more and more in this uh, responsiveness to the grace of God in my life and taking what God has blessed me with and being a blessing with that? And then in terms of adopting an eternal heavenly perspective, am I exhibiting this little spirit on stuff? See, this key question that we want to ask about this final trait of joyful generosity ties in beautifully to what Paul has just written to Timothy. Am I exhibiting, am I growing, sorry, to what extent am I growing in generosity and exhibiting a deep trust in God and a loose grip on my stuff? I want to just allow you a moment just to look at that question. To think about what your budget looks like right now. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a retired couple, whether you're a, a family, an empty nest couple. It doesn't matter whether you're on two incomes or one. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're single and flatting or a uni student still living at home. All of us have an income. All of us have spending habits. All of us can choose or not to save. And all of us have the opportunity to give a little or more or more. And the question, really, that every single one of us needs to wrestle with is to what extent am I growing in generosity? And to what extent am I exhibiting a deep trust in God with the way I use my money and a loose grip on my stuff? That's what joyful generosity is. Is all about. And so with that, uh, we come to the end of this Summit Journey series. So now what? What's next? Where do we go from here? Well, the key question, of course, in this whole Summit Journey discipleship strategy is how am I planning to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? And so I now want to throw the question back to you and ask you that. How are you planning? What's your plan to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? That's why we have put together this Summit Journey Guidebook. We handed these out a number of weeks ago now, but there will be more of these on the info table at Botany um, at the end of this service as you watch it. If you have misplaced this or you weren't there that Sunday and you would like to grab one, I want to invite you to pick another one up from the info table uh, outside in the foyer at Botany. Uh, in Hastings, they're going to have a bunch of these. Hatta and Shane will have these available for you as well. And I want to invite you to grab these. Because what we want to invite you to do is walk through these four key questions and use these to make your personal plan 
of how you're going to intentionally grow. And so there's four questions, and at the very back, um, the, the second to last lots of pages, there's a place called My Journey, and there's a place for you to actually write out your plan, to personalise this, what you're going to do in 2019 to intentionally become more like Jesus. So the first question for you is, why? Why do you want to grow? What's the motivation? And going right back to that message in February, I suggested it's all about gospel-driven growth, that we should want to grow and become like Christ in response to His grace by the power of His Spirit for the glory of God. And it may be that one of those four things, or one of the, the myths that I talked about in that message, was really key for you. They're listed in this booklet, but... But maybe go back and review those and, and maybe just write then in your journey what the key motivation is for you. The second question then is where? Where do I want to grow? Which of these seven traits do I want to grow in? And here's where I want to invite you to, to deliberately reflect. Uh, three suggestions. One suggestion would be to, to carve out a little bit of time, maybe a couple of hours even. And if you've got kids, maybe get your spouse to look after them or a friend. But get a little bit of time with God and just pray. And, and, and ask God to help you see which of these seven areas do you need to grow on? Ask, ask this question, where do I feel like the Holy Spirit is nudging me to want to grow? There's seven core traits we've covered now that are all in the middle part of this booklet. And maybe you just want to walk through this. Maybe look through this prayerfully and say, which of those seven identities do I really need to grow in? Or which of those seven verbs do I really need to start living out? Or which of those that seven key challenges is, is the biggest hurdle in my life right now. And so maybe just spend some time praying and prayerfully asking God to do that. A second option to help you with this where question is that we have developed a, an online assessment tool. It's going to be available on our website. And so you can jump in there. There's a brand new tab on our website, summitchurch.nz, called Summit Journey. And you can jump in Summit Journey, and under the Where Deliberate Reflection, there's a brand new assessment tool. It'll take you a little while. Under each of those seven traits, we've written eight questions. That is 56 questions in all. And you can just go through those, and you're asked to just give yourself a rating. Don't overthink it. Just do that. And it will give you the results at the end, and you can just look across these seven traits and go, Oh, look, I, I scored myself higher on this one, but I scored myself lower on this one. And that's an opportunity for you to take a snapshot. It's not watertight. It's not massively scientific. It's simply a chance for you to, to maybe analyze and reflect on and assess your whole life and see where are you strong right now? Where do you obviously feel you're weaker? And then maybe help you, help, that may help you to decide well, where do you want to grow. The third key thing that I'd suggest maybe you may want to do, and you can do any or none of this, um, is to sit down with a trusted friend. Maybe just sit down with your spouse. Maybe you're in a mentoring peer and you'd like to have this conversation. Or maybe there's just someone else you trust. But just to sit down and have a conversation. Hey, what do you see in my life? Of those seven traits, what do you think may be the one I should work on most? Or which one do you think is weakest? Or which one do you think is strongest that maybe I should really pursue this year? Whatever that is. But I invite you to decide where do you feel the Holy Spirit is nudging you to grow? And when you decide which of those traits you want to grow in, I want to invite you to write that in to your plan at the back of the guidebook. Then the third question, of course, is, is the who. Who are you going to grow with? And in that message early on, we talked about four key ways to engage in intentional community. So there's groups, 
And if you're not part of a group, but that's something that would resonate for you, then grab the Intentional Community booklet or email or phone Robin in the office and he'd love to guide you into a group. But we also talked there about, about peers, about being part of a mentoring relationship for a year. And that may be with someone further on in the Christian life that you, or that could be with a peer. That just, you just want to have an intentional uh, relationship where you're meeting regularly with someone and that can be working through some materials or simply asking each other questions, but trying to intentionally grow together this year. Or maybe through classes. And uh, we've had the Doug Pollock one that's happening this week. Um, or there, there'll be other classes coming through the year that you may want to sign up for and say, you know, I want to, I want to engage in intentional community uh, through a class. And then the fourth way to do that is through our serving teams. And as we work together, as we lead together, as we pray together in teams, that's another great way to shape character. So, so what's the who? Decide what the who is and, and write that into your plan and your guidebook. And then the final question is, well, how are you going to do that? And just these past couple of weeks, I've been putting together a big list of practical resources. So on our website under Summit Journey, you can go into the how section and there's the seven key traits listed there. And depending which one you want to grow in, you can click on that. And there's some suggested resources for how you can grow. So there's four key things that I've listed there. There's some practices, some practical things you can do. There's some books that I would recommend for that area if you really want to grow and you're a reader. Uh, there's some fantastic teaching stuff on Right Now Media, which we subscribe to as a church. It's free for everyone who's part of Summit Church. You should have a sign-in. If you don't, email the church office, and we'll try and get back to you as quick as we can. But you can jump into Right Now Media, and there's a list of Right Now Media resources for each of those seven traits. And then finally, there's some curriculum for groups or for mentoring peers to use. And so again, have a look through the, the, the practical resources, and then write it into your guidebook. Here's how I'm going to grow. Ultimately, the ball is now in your court. It's over to you. And this is not rocket science. This is not meant to be elaborate and long and massive. This is really, I would suggest, about something quite simple. About saying, okay, how am I going to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? What's my plan? And the plan doesn't have to be extravagant. It's simply a matter of saying, okay, here's where I want to grow. And this is the area of life I want to grow in. And this is who I would do that with. And this is the book, or this is the right now media, or this is the practices that I want to try and do in my life this year to grow and become more like Jesus. It's really that simple. And I simply want to invite you to jump in. Grab your guidebook, carve out some time in these next couple of weeks, and fill out this double page. Come up with your plan. Because that's the key question for this year, for each of us who are part of Summit Church. How am I planning to intentionally become more and more like Jesus this year? And God bless you as you do.